two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro, and I am joined by Lindsay Machasol. She is the Director for Data and Engagement at the Open Contracting Partnership, and she is a member of Canada's Multi-Stakeholder Forum on Open Government. And the reason she's here today is because right now, the government is throwing around money like it's going out of style. And many think there should be some accountability and transparency measures attached with those actions. Hello, Lindsay, and thanks for joining us. Hi, Richard. Thank you so much for having me. So let's begin with this first. Can you give the audience some examples, success stories on how open contracting, open contracting has given us a more accountable, transparent, and engaging government. Thank you so much for the question. So over the last five years or so, uh, my organization, the Open Contracting Partnership, and our partners around the world have really shown that open contracting can make a big difference when it's done right. And by that, I mean when there's good data, when business and civil society have a voice, and when the government has an ear to listen. We've seen direct savings from open contracting reforms in a host of countries. Um, in fact, we've done a little bit of adding them up and it's a remarkable amount, at least uh, 2 billion US dollars, especially when open contracting data from real-time transactional systems is being used to monitor performance in business intelligence and citizen monitoring platforms. This has been the case in the Ukraine, for example. But there have been many other types of ben benefits and impacts as well. In Paraguay, a group of student activists actually led a national campaign to fix spending on their schools. They used open contracting information and led a national reform to give long needed repairs to their schools that were in marginalized communities. And in the United Kingdom, a BBC Newsnight, a journalist team, used open contracting data to identify wildly differentiated standards of care for teenagers in state custody. These mm. were vulnerable kids forced to live in tough conditions. And as a result of this investigation, the government has suspended the practice of housing children in unregulated contracted homes. So if you or your listeners want to learn more about, you know, these types of impacts and benefits, we have an evidence page on our website uh, at open-contracting.org, where you can read more of these inspiring stories of change. Now, it might be relevant to perhaps just give a quick sort of elevator pitch or like explanation of how you guys define open contracting and, and what it is exactly. So I think there's often some understanding that when we say open contracting, we mean only transparency. And that's really only part of the equation. What we're really talking about improving public contracting systems to make them smarter and to make them more open. And what does open mean in this context? Well, it means having a clear understanding of what are the challenges facing this procurement system? What are the goals for reform? How do we want to improve outcomes? Whether that's 
uh, very specific things like uh, fixing schools in the educational sector, or if it's wider challenges of uh, anti-corruption, needing better value for money, economic stimulus, wanting to empower small and medium-sized businesses. There's a whole variety of goals that different stakeholders bring to a public contracting system. And then the next part of that is to collaborate on identifying what parts of the system can be reformed and changed. And a big part of that is technology, bringing in digital systems and introducing open data. And that's why we developed the Open Contracting Data Standard, which is a framework, a schema to help you to know exactly what information to publish and to publish it in a structured standardized format. And then how that information is going to then be used to monitor the challenges that you're facing and to identify the further reforms that are going to be needed. So there's a huge portion of open contracting that's really about change management, about understanding how we can work together to better coordinate and get to the better outcomes. So it's about making the process more agile, more collaborative, and ultimately more useful. And it's so true, many people, when they, whenever you see the word open in front of any other noun, you assume transparency of information, but a lot of the times it's more about the collaborative element and the, 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 the engagement element of open that we're interested in as a community. But along those lines, it means that I'm assuming many companies and governments put their backs up because they think it's about releasing a whole bunch of information. And many companies and governments are often reluctant to release contract information due to competitive reasons. How can we get around that? So the good news there is that norms are changing. We're seeing a huge and rising demand for open contracting reforms around the world. Uh, for example, last year, OCP launched an impact accelerator program called LIFT, and we received 77 applications for just five spots in the program. Uh, when you so say applications, you mean from companies or from governments? But mostly from governments. Okay. Uh, there were some companies who applied, but mostly from governments. And that was it, ultimately the five uh, was Buenos Aires, Mexico City, New Orleans, Ecuador, and Moldova. But in addition to that evidence of the growing demand, there's been more than 50 governments that have put open contracting into their OGP action plans. And open contracting has been endorsed by the G20, G7, OECD, and others. Um, and you were kind of asking about businesses in particular, and we've really seen that the benefits for businesses are there. Uh, in contexts where open contracting reforms have been implemented, participation of small and medium-sized businesses have increased, and the trust and perception of fairness of the system by business has increased as well, because ultimately these reforms actually help business have a fairer access to market opportunity. But of course, there's going to be those who are not yet convinced, and for those people, uh, OCP conducted some research a couple of years ago into the top 10 concerns, you know, the most frequently cited reasons that publishing public contracting information may be sensitive. And we examined what the evidence and practice was around those concerns all over the world. And we called it the myth busting report. And it's also available on our website. Can you tell us some of the, the busting of myths when it comes <laughs> to open contracting that you guys have? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. You know, they're, they're often very specific, like, um, 
you know, some of the countries in which we work, not Canada, but they may not have an access to information law. Okay, we can't, we can't publish information without an access to information law. Uh, we can't publish information without, uh, without the company's permission. Or we, um, we, we can't publish uh, information about prices because that's commercially sensitive. And really what we're seeing is a variety of practice around the world where, you know, when you come to weighing the, the pros and cons, because that's what access to information is all about, is weighing the, the, pro, the public benefit of transparency over the public benefit of confidentiality, and that the public benefit outweighs, uh, outweighs the, the reasons for confidentiality in most, in most cases. Uh, and there's been uh, plenty of evidence showing that where certain information is published, that it helped, for example, um, cost estimates many many are unsure whether that is a good idea to publish the estimated budget of a planned contract and evidence is showing that that usually leads the market to bid under that planned estimate so it usually leads to savings mm -hmm. so there are there are as opposed to the concern that it would lead to uh, more expensive outcomes so these are the types of things where we really try to unpack and and understand you know is this a real concern or is this an excuse and when it comes to the real concerns, of course, there are some, you know, you want to protect uh, public personal safety, you want to protect public health, you want to protect uh, national security, and those considerations will be different in different countries. For example, in a place like Afghanistan, it may not be a good idea to publish information about a contract uh, to build a, a girl's school. In another country, that would not be sensitive information at all. Mm -hmm. So it does have to be context specific. However, that's where the, you know, we, the, the framework for publishing information is a framework and then that has to be tailored to, to the individual context because every place is going to have a different legal framework. But in terms of kind of the norms and where they're heading, it's definitely heading towards, you know, more transparency than less. So I want to shift our conversation a little bit to COVID-19 because it has led to unprecedented funds being distributed to the private sector and to citizens as part of stimulus packages. And there's been large and swift medical purchases like ventilators and masks. And I'm sure that very few of those purchases have gone through tr traditional procurement channels. And I'm wondering, what are the risks that are associated with those actions right now? Well, yes, the COVID crisis is exacerbating many of the pre-existing challenges that have faced public contracting for many years. And now that we're in crisis mode, everyone is being mobilized to purchase urgently needed medical equipment to fight the virus. And what we need, of course, is fast and effective procurement that makes the best use of government money. And hopefully this is you know, becoming more agile, more collaborative, and more open, because the alternative is honestly a disaster. Uh, I don't know if you've been watching uh, or paying attention to some of the news out of our neighbor, the United States, but there have been, you know, several failed attempts so far to purchase ventilators, and the states and federal governments are competing with each other. Distributors can't get access to stock, and the frontline staff are paying the price. Uh, so that's definitely the scenario uh, we want to avoid. Um, there are two things that I do have to say Canada has done well in the current crisis that I would love to give a shout out to. Um, first, when it comes to open contracting, 
Procurement Services Canada demonstrated some agile engagement with the private sector by publishing an open call to potential suppliers. So they basically said, Sorry, hey, I want to make Sorry, do you mean as a response to COVID-19 they put out? Exactly, okay. as a response to COVID-19. So they put on a, out a call saying, hey, are you a company who can supply any of these key products and services that we need to combat COVID-19? And can you sell anything we haven't put on this list that you think is needed to combat COVID-19? And this call is being very well publicized and will hopefully help the federal government as well as provinces, cities, and hospitals to find new suppliers who can help to provide the needed goods and services. So this is a good example of kind of being agile, engaging with the market, trying to find out, you know, what's out there, trying to improve um, the coordination. And, Sorry, I'll stop in case you have a question. No, no, please that. continue. I thought you were done with your answer, but <laughs> please, please just dump that brain of yours here because this is fascinating. Well, I do have a lot to say on this uh, on this topic. So the other thing, and this is a little bit different than open contracting specifically, but since you know the podcast is about open government more broadly, I think this is worth a shout out, which is that. A lot of people in the open government community have been concerned about the lack of transparency over the laws and emergency orders being passed in response to the crisis. So not so much the spending, but the different measures that are, are being placed. And in response to these concerns, the government has created a dedicated Department of Justice webpage, which brings all of the related orders, regulations, legislations, and uh, the charter statements about them into one place, which is really helpful for those of us who just are interested in ensuring you know, democratic accountability uh, during this time of crisis. But that's not to say that everything is perfect. Um, we've seen from past scandals like the Phoenix Pay System that a lack of stakeholder engagement and transparency in the planning of and management of big government contracts can be extremely costly in the long run. And we really do need to avoid these costs. And that means smart reforms are needed um, to the system and the processes to be more agile, more collaborative, and more open. Because currently, it is difficult, um, even for the government, to get a complete picture, to get complete data about the planning, procurement, and implementation of public contracts. This means it's difficult to search for past suppliers of ventilators and 95 masks and other needed equipment or to identify existing framework agreements that can be leveraged quickly. And because we're a federal country, data is not standardized across the federal and provincial levels and provincial procurement is subject to much more variable degrees of transparency and openness. So in times of crisis, there is a risk of provinces competing with each other or facing a limited supply of goods in the market. So this is something that will require collaboration, transparency and coordination of strategic procurement. If complete records were already available, then it would be easier to monitor the COVID-19 response. Um, and that's where the government uh, work that's happened in Ukraine, Paraguay, Colombia over the past, past few years have really laid the foundation for being more agile because they've already implemented the open contracting data standard and now have dedicated data sets about their COVID-19 response procurement, which is being used to improve coordination and supply chain management among public health authorities, hospitals, and others. And in fact, tomorrow, uh, OCP is hosting a community call on the open contracting response to COVID-19. We've had almost 150 people register from around the world. This podcast will be out after that call has happened, but the recording will be available for anyone who's interested. Oh, that's wonderful. I'll make sure to put it in the show notes. I want to go back a little bit to something you had mentioned about being more agile in terms of procurement. 
and some of the scandals that have come from sort of traditional procurement methodologies like Phoenix and in the States, healthcare.gov. And I have this saying that I use frequently that government is an institution that's in the business of spending five years developing a program that will last 20 years. And that, that kind of mentality is no longer relevant. And I'm reminded, and again, this is not something that I brought up in our pre-interview. So I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here. Uh, um, but there, there was a program in Guelph called the Civic Solutions, Civic Solutions Accelerator. And I'm wondering how familiar you were with that program and if you can speak at all on it. That sounds like a great program, but unfortunately, I'm not personally familiar with it. I'd love to learn more. Yeah, so basically, they were trying to do a lot of the things that you're discussing right now, which is to reform procurement, and they took a much more sort of entrepreneurial and startup method methodology using some of the existing laws that, that are on the books in Ontario, but it also embeds companies with this, it embedded companies with the city prior to signing on the dotted line that they're going to do any kind of a work so they can work the problem a little bit more. Uh, there were there some lessons learned in that enterprise, and I believe it's pivoted to the municipal exchange. I think it's called the municipal innovation exchange. But nevertheless, let's go back to you real quick. And, um, and, and I want to talk about open contracting principles a little bit because I'm more curious than anything else. It's a bit of a sidebar question. Does open contracting principles also apply to social programs? Or should it, like employment insurance, welfare, housing, or maybe even things like education or investment programs for small and medium-sized businesses? This is a great question. And I think at the short answer, yes, in principle. Uh, but of course, in terms of kind of uh, open contracting principles and, and our work as the open contracting partnership, this really applies to, to government contracting, which is mostly procurement. This definitely has an impact and effect on social services since, you know, as I mentioned in the UK, there's incidents where um, care of children is contracted out. These contracts uh, should be governed by, by open contracting. Um, but there are other ways that government enters into contracts as well. And there are not always where they're buying services or goods Government also sells and leases uh, land, mineral rights, mm. and other properties. So this is definitely also a, a focus of our work, and we try to sort support partners who are interested in reforming how they auction off uh, or or give out these types of, of contracts. But um, when it comes to benefits that are not contracts, uh, while it's a bit out of scope of my work personally at the Open Contracting Partnership, this is still very important. And there are other partners in the open government field who are working on improving those processes, like grant making. Uh, mm -hmm. For example, I think Michael Lesner's work here in Canada, or um, there's an organization called 360 Giving in the UK uh, that's been doing a lot of work on, on transparency over grant making. Earlier, you mentioned mineral rights, and I just wanted to share something with our audience who may not be familiar with what those are. And I have a friend who lives in Northern Ontario, more specifically in a little town outside Timmins called South Porcupine. And he bought some land there, many acres. And while he has the rights to say that the trees that are on his land, he does not necessarily all of the rights of the minerals that are underneath his property. So in other words, if the mining company wanted to come in because there's a vein of zinc or whatever, or 
or nickel under his, his land, they could, that's essentially theirs. So it's, it's, that's what we're, I'm assuming that's what you meant by mineral rights, those kinds of contracts and, and conversations. Exactly, exactly. Where, where there are, um, you know, as you know, government owns a lot of land uh, and there are, are minerals uh, and uh, uh, things that would be good for mining <laughs> that are <laughs> underneath the ground. I think we're getting a little bit out of our, both of our sort of comfort zones here. So, uh, let's talk. I, I'm actually quite comfortable talking about governance of extractive industries. I don't know why I had such a <laughs> a slip of the tongue there and couldn't couldn't access my words anymore <laughs> well it's perfectly fine and uh, believe you me i've had more than those on the podcast and sometimes it's uh see it just happened right now so <laughs> <laughs> uh all right let's get back and get on topic um and, and i want to reference a, a recent episode uh, that I recorded with Jesse Hirsch. And, and for those of you who don't know, I, I keep referencing, referencing Jesse in my podcast. He is a futurist and a technology consultant. And in early March, he, he wrote an article essentially saying that right now, democracy is on the line. So I invited him. I want to ask him to expand on those thoughts. And he equated COVID-19 as not unlike the end of the Cold War and that it will forever change society. He said that this will have a bigger impact than 9-11 and that our actions or inactions today will define a new path forward, good or bad. Sort of, we can either go to Star Trek The Next Generation way or the Hunger Games way. So I got to ask you a little bit, do you agree with that perspective? And if so, what advancements do you want to see happen in a post-COVID-19 world? Wow. Well, that is definitely an interesting perspective. And, you know, to, to some extent, I can see it. I can see, you know, some of the, the things in the news about some of the, the more autocratic measures that are being passed in some countries, um, granting, you know, sweeping powers uh, to, to, governing, to governing parties and rulers. And, it's, and it is a cause for concern. Um, but I think ultimately, my feeling is that COVID-19 is, is really an unprecedented, unprecedented crisis in our lifetime and, and unlike anything I can think of in, in the past uh, 100 years. Um, many people are getting sick, hospitals are getting overwhelmed, people are dying, and those of us who are well are grappling with self-isolation, social distancing, travel restrictions, and, and the loss of income is, is huge. So we don't really know when life will get back to normal or whether there will be a new normal. Um, but it's definitely clear that the, the economic uh, cost will be huge. And I think to Jesse's point, it's, it's unclear at this point what the political cost will be. Um, many of us, including the governments, are in crisis mode. And when in crisis, there's definitely a risk that in the need to move fast, things may happen less transparently, with less accountability. And when it comes to government contracting in particular, there will definitely be a lot of pressure to spend money quickly during the crisis and also in support of economic recovery. So it really is more important than ever um, that this function be transparent, agile, and, and, and put people at the center. Many uh, people within the community, and as, as morbid as it may sound, are kind of seeing COVID-19 as an opportunity, that 
we now have a chance to almost redraft a new foundation for government going forward. Do you th would you agree as well with that perspective that if, if you implemented some of our principles and if we helped you out with these elements, then we can help mitigate these kinds of crises and emergencies in the future? Definitely. I agree for sure that not just open contracting, that, that open government can help. I, I do fundamentally believe that, that the, the elements, the levers of open government can help to solve and mitigate uh, real problems. I think the challenge is trying to do it in the middle of the crisis. Um, mm -hmm. This is definitely one of the reasons to, to prepare ahead, to lay good foundations, good processes, because when crisis happens, then those then those, uh, those, that's already part of how business is done and how business is made more effective. Um, but in the follow-up to COVID-19, I definitely anticipate um, that there will be uh, more demand for this type of reform as uh, public resources become more precious. Right now, there are some Canadian governments who have solicited help from the open government, open data and, and civic tech community. And essentially, asking many of us to work for free, which is perfectly fine. We all need to chip in and answer the call during this time of need. And, and I'll be the first, in, the first person to get in line to help. But there's also an undercurrent here that not many people know about. For years, at least in Canada, and I assume many other Western countries, the open government, open data, and civic tech community has been woefully underfunded by the government especially when compared to non-Western countries. First, you and your organization are worldwide. Is my assumption here accurate? And if so, why do you think that is? So, yeah, I definitely agree with you that these communities, open government, open source, civic technology, you know, shouldn't be treated like the giving tree. You know that Shel Salverstein book about mm -hmm. there's a tree who gives its fruit, its limbs, and ultimately its life, um, you know, for the greater good, um, but with nothing in return. And many of us uh, contribute to open government as volunteers, at least that's the capacity in which I act on the multi-stakeholder forum here in Canada. But around the world, it is a challenge. How can these communities scale and flourish? Incentives and resources do need to align. And when it comes to the international context, it, 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 is, it is an evergreen challenge that's faced everywhere. Sustainable funding for social accountability, civic tech, and other open government engagement activities is elusive. Uh, there are obviously funders out there who are funding this work around the world, um, including private foundations as well as government. Uh, organizations and development institutions, but finding a sustainable mechanism is is elusive. And, and one of the challenges that compounds this is a lot of civil society organizations have expressed, at least to me, that they're, they're not comfortable taking government money mm. uh, as it may impact their independence. So it is definitely an evergreen challenge. I have seen you know, the Canadian government has funded some work uh, through through different institutions like Infrastructure Canada. But finding what the mechanisms, are, the right mechanisms are is something that I don't think anybody has found the perfect answer to. 
um, when it comes to kind of open source and civic tech, I think that's where it's great that the Canadian government has made commitments to open source technologies and open standards in IT projects, which should open the door to, you know, skilled providers, uh, consultants, smaller organizations um, to be able to respond uh, to requests for proposals and to work on government projects and get remunerated for for their efforts but for that to happen it's really important that these these criteria these elements be part of the design of those projects so that it's done mindfully with a view to engage and uh, compensate uh, members of those communities do you think that COVID-19 has made the government actually realize that our community needs to be better funded and that in a post-COVID-19 world they'll remedy this oversight or do you think they're just going to go back to baseline and thanks for the help while things were tough and and but we're just going to go back to our old ways of doing things i wish i knew the answer to that question i think what i can do and what i can offer to do is is take that question to the multi-stakeholder forum on open government and see what opportunities there are that could be explored um, going forward in the post in the post-covid world That'd be great. So now, strictly speaking, from the perspective of the open contracting partnership, you know what? I think we sort of glanced over this earlier, but do you think governments will be more amenable to adopting your principles after COVID-19? Yes. Um, one of my friends actually in the open government community likes to say that a crisis can be a reformer's best friend. <laughs> and <laughs> it's true. And, you know, the economic challenges that are coming around the corner are are huge. So improving efficiency and value for money in public contracting will be mission critical. We're going to be facing severe budget shortfalls, an economic recession. So savings are going to need to be found somewhere and public investment will need to lead to local economic improvement. Um, so I do anticipate that uh, open contracting reforms will increase in a post-COVID world. This is also because I'm an optimist. And when it comes to Canada specifically, uh, it really is imperative that new solutions for public procurement, like the new uh, electronic procurement system that's being built currently, that it be user tested, that uh, complete procurement records are published as real-time open data, that government, academia, business, media, civil society, that this information is used to make further reforms uh, to get at that uh, value for money and efficiency and market opportunity that we were talking about. Uh, the government has already committed to piloting the open contracting data standard for this purpose, but uh, I anticipate the need will be greater in the coming years. And provinces also really need to be engaged uh, to share in standardized data as well and engage their stakeholders locally since in particular health is a provincial mandate in this country. Yeah, yeah but ultimately we do need to see public money deliver public value. And um, as another one of my friends in the open government once said, uh, open contracting is not just about value for money, but value for many. And mm. that's really what we're going to have to do in the post-COVID world. So we got to start thinking about wrapping up this uh, episode here. And I want to give you a chance. Like we, We've talked about a lot of different things right now, but is there anything that we haven't had a chance to talk about that you want to make sure that the audience knows about? Well, just Richard, I really appreciate uh, the the effort you're putting into to the open government community in Canada and and the series of of podcast and educational content that you're putting together. 
I think it's really wonderful and uh, I can't wait to, to benefit from it. Unfortunately, and once again, this podcast will be broadcast on Thursday, but our first session was scheduled to take place uh, on, on Tuesday afternoon. And I learned about a term called Zoom bombing, which is essentially the troll community of the internet just inundating a Zoom link, a Zoom meeting with a whole bunch of stuff that you would find on the old chat roulettes of the 2000s and 4chans and things of that nature. So it's unfortunate that those things happen, but we'll, we'll endure and come up with, uh, with new solutions to those kinds of things. But thank you for giving for that plug and those kind words. I now want to give you the opportunity. Is there anything in particular that you or the Open Contracting Partnership or the Multi-Stakeholder Forum for Canada is working on right now that you'd like to tell us? Sure, yes. Well, when it comes to uh, the Open Contracting Partnership, we have a, a few things ongoing. Um, you know, firstly, we're, we're continuing to support our partners in dozens of countries around the world, uh, despite uh, the, the ongoing COVID, country, the COVID crisis. Uh, many of our partners are still actively working on their reforms. Um, we're developing new tools uh, to help uh, monitor data quality and to promote data use. We are planning a major upgrade to, or not a major, a significant upgrade to the open contracting data standard, uh, starting to work on that this year. So we're already improving our documentation, but we really are excited to work with experts around the world and the community to, to improve the standard itself, to meet the, the changing needs uh, that the communities identified over the past couple of years. We're doing some exciting research into how open contracting can specifically benefit uh, objectives of inclusion and particularly gender inclusion. So how open contracting can um, lower the barriers for women-led businesses to participate in public contracts. And we are doing some uh, comparative legislative research with the Thomson Reuters Foundation Trust Law Program. So looking at different examples of public, public procurement laws around the world and understanding um, what, uh, what best practice uh, looks like when it's written in the law. So these are just some of the things we have coming up. Yeah, just some of the things. <laughs> um, but you mentioned something about that over the course of the last few years, there's been a changing of needs when it comes to open contracting standards. There's almost, I would say, like it sounds as though there's a, a maturity taking place in the community for the standards. What are some of those changes? Sure, I'd be happy to. So now we have um, more than, yeah, more than two dozen uh, governments publishing the OCDS, and we have another dozen or two dozen working on their implementations now. And we we're learning so much about the the different needs, the different use cases for the information. Um, some, like I alluded to, you know, some partners are really interested in in better monitoring participation of small business, women-led businesses, and there's conversations about how best to model that in open contracting data. There's conversations about how to best model more complex forms of government contracting, uh, where there's multiple stages that are part of the process, and there's various rounds of supplier pre-qualification. So as public contracting process has become more complex, how to model that complexity uh, to that will be easier for users of the data. 
And, uh, and then also, as we have been working with governments from all different parts of the world and all different backgrounds, languages, uh, there's definitely a desire for more linguistic support, mm-hmm. making, making the documentation more tailored to the, to the different languages. Oh, this has been a fascinating conversation, Lindsay. Uh, thank you so much for taking part in the interview and, and being so insightful with your answers. And uh, I want to thank our audience for listening. And as usual, please leave a rating or a comment on how to make the podcast better or if there's any guests or any stories that you'd like to hear. So until next time, let's make it over.